BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, July 17, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is the writer I want to be when I grow up, the great and stupendous Charlie Pierce from Esquire, NPR Radio, and of course, the Stephanie Miller Show, where he engages in awkward phone sex with Jody Hamilton every week. Today, we're going to talk about Never Trumpers, the impact of social media on the political debate, Charlie's approach to writing and covering the Trump crisis as well as a word or two about Star Trek, of course. Charlie's various links are available in the description below. Meanwhile, if you like what you hear, please support this show by subscribing to our bonus content on our Patreon page. That's bobseskashow.com. Okay, here we go at long last with my journalism hero, Charlie Pierce. Here I am, yes, on my sofa. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's so great to hear from you, my friend. Hi, Bubba, uh, what's going on? Uh, is this the uh, Sexy Liberal po- uh, Network podcast? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's Excellent. My, my big Wednesday show, yeah. and, and I think your debut on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. It is, actually. I have not done any of the other Sexy Liberal podcasts yet. I was in L.A., but I wasn't there for the right day for the happy hour, so... There's my one-man round of applause. Thank you so much. And there we go. And and you know what? I'm so disappointed uh, because I had to interrupt your latest debate with Tom Nichols on Twitter. Oh, that's okay. I I mean, it's around. It's it's round and round we go at this point. You know, know, but apparently people apparently people find it entertaining and informative. So what the fuck? Yeah, you know what? Someone on Twitter yesterday suggested some sort of podcast with the two of you, and I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue for a living with somebody. No, (laughs) I already turned that down from ESPN. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking. Maybe a one-off. Maybe I get your back. Maybe I get Tom Nichols, and I can just moderate this uh, as a uh, as a one-hour special. <laughs> well, I don't know. Let's do this first, though. So, what's your? Uh, just... Have we start? Have we started already? By the way, I don't even know. <laughs> we we are absolutely underway. We're we're underway. Oh, okay, now, so. excellent. All right. I didn't um, hear a beep or or theme music or anything. So <laughs> we don't need any of that crap, Charlie. It's kind uh, of a bare bones thing going here. <laughs> So let me, we're talking about Tom Nichols. Let me ask you about Tom Nichols. I get the sense that uh, despite his former Republican affiliation, he's not uh, a completely unreasonable guy. He's willing to bend on some things he might have resisted a few years ago. What's your, uh, what's your readout on Tom? Tom's a smart guy. Tom's a professor at the Naval War College. He's a Massachusetts guy, Western Massachusetts. He's from, he's from that area of Massachusetts that we who grew up in Worcester call out by New York. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, 
yeah, I mean, I like. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know Tom. I've never been in the same room with him. He's one of those Twitter guys. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm enjoying the, you know, I'm enjoying the back and forth. Other people seem to be doing it, and I think there's, a, there's an interesting divide now, though. Yeah. The Never Trump Republicans were very useful mm. for the first three years. Yeah. But now the Democrats have to run for president again, and some of their advice isn't very useful. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, you're exactly right. You know, I mean, they're they're valuable allies in the fight against the incumbent president. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily value al valuable allies in replacing them. I think we got to be very careful about that. And we have to be very careful not to, if the Democrat is fortunate enough to win in 2020, we have to be very careful and not let the Republicans do to Donald Trump what they did to George W. Bush, That's right. which was basically dump the whole thing down the memory hole mm -hmm. and pretend it never happened. Donald Trump should be a reason for the Republican Party to tear itself down to the ground and rebuild itself. Exactly right. And and the hope is, I mean, my hope for that three years that you talked about when the Never Trumpers were useful, my hope was that we could uh, somehow form some kind of coalition, some sort of working group to come up with a series of things that close that giant Trump-shaped hole in the wall that he's created, and that we make sure that not another Trump, you know, Trump 2.0 comes sashaying through that hole. And I thought, you know what, look, if we can find common cause with these guys, and there is that big common cause, which is getting rid of Donald Trump, fixing all the things that he's broken, um, maybe that can work. But now I see exactly what you're talking about because we're in this election cycle now, and it seems like the never Trump approach is – Jesus, you guys are a bunch of feckless losers. You better step aside and let us take over yeah, and, here. And, 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 and drop all these crazy ideas that are coincidentally very popular in the country at large. And, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, make sure, make sure you don't disturb the guys, you know, eating their third plate of Scrapple in the diner. Yeah, right. Uh, and, you know, I was very intrigued today by that. There's a Reuters poll that came out on uh, today on Wednesday, mm. uh, which said that Donald Trump had ticked up a couple of points in his approval rating with Republicans since going off on his racist, uh, you know, manic episode over the weekend. Right. But it went up two points to 72%. Mm -hmm. If his approval rating is 72% with Republicans in the 2020 election, he's going to get crushed. Yeah, that, I thought that was uh, horrible news for him. And of course, good news for the rest of us. Uh, you know, I just right now I'm taking a look at some of those head to head polls and going, you know what? I'm not a fan of Joe Biden, but good Lord, those numbers are intriguing. Um, yeah, well, not just, well, not, not just that, but I, I think in the discussion, the discussion is, and because it's so early, you could say anything. Mm. The discussion is all, always premised on it being a close election. Yeah. Nobody is factoring in the possibility that, that Donald Trump will take the Republicans down to a historic defeat. Yeah. Which is, which is easily as likely as his being reelected at this point. Now, mm. it, you know, that situation will develop as we go along. But, you know, right right now, as I said, if, if his approval rating among Republicans is 72 percent, he's in desperate trouble. Mm -hmm. Right. Because he needs that in no, no lower than the mid 80s. Yeah. Yeah. On top of the fact that he's only at uh, 40, 44 percent among voters in general. And you combine those yeah. two things together and it's kind of bad news for him. Although listening to Never Trumpers, you think that. He's about to just steamroll over the entire nation. In fact, Charlie Sykes wrote a piece for the Bulwark yesterday in which he was oh, basically he, he was invoking George McGovern. He says, OK, you guys nominate another oh, I read, McGovern. Yeah, yeah I, I, I read that. He, the, I don't know what, what Charlie was doing in 1972, but he misunderstands that election completely. <laughs> nobody, nobody was 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 overconfident about beating Nixon. Right. Uh, 
I mean, in the spring of, of, of 1972, Nixon came back from China. His mm-hmm. approval rating was over 70. Yep. I don't know where this, you know, this, oh, they were, they were, they were so confident they nominated McGovern. They nominated McGovern because he won the primaries. That's, that's exactly right. And then, a lot of, and then a lot of Democrats became never McGoverners. Yep. Yep. That's Especially a, including the AFL-CIO. Yeah, and in fact, uh, Hunter S. Thompson's book, uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign right. Trail, I think contains a lot, a lot of that exact sentiment. Like, oh, God, you know, we're on board with McGovern, but, mm, geez, this, this, was this the right guy? Was this the guy to do it? Yeah, and, and, it, and, it, and it the, the, very, the very first, you know, uh, Woodward and Bernstein Watergate stories came out in July and August of 1972 and had absolutely no impact on the election. Right. Because nobody wanted it. I mean, no. First of all, nobody except them wanted the story. Mm. And, and 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 number two, nobody was willing to. to McGovern tried right at the end to make an issue out of it, but nobody understood it at that point. Yeah. yeah. So no, I don't. I don't think the Democrats were were cruising, were, were brimming with self confidence in 1972. Yeah, that's true. And you know what? Just going back to the I don't number- think anybody was brimming with self confidence on anything in politics in 1972. <laughs> That's absolutely 100% true. And we saw it in, in so many different ways. And, and in fact, it was all part of a, of a period of time in which no one knew which end was up uh, politically. And that's, I think, why you know, people attended to uh, uh, reelect uh, Richard Nixon in that election in particular. Because, uh, well, for lack of anything else that uh, we can kind of latch our brains around, why not this guy? We, we know him. We're familiar with him. So fine Nixon again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and, and you know there was a, there was and there was some serious rat humping going on too. Let's not mm-hmm. forget. Yep. We didn't find out about it till following year, but uh, there was there was a lot of manipulation. I mean, certainly low tech compared to what we're seeing now, but low tech manipulation in the early primaries, especially against Muskie, mm-hmm. uh, and a little bit against Humphrey, and and you know that the, the line from the movie, it's a you know all the president's men. They wanted to run against McGovern. Look who they're running against. Yep. Yep. You know, I mean that. I mean, it worked. Yeah. Until they, I mean, they got caught, but it worked. Why are you? And I'm not saying I'm not saying that that counts for, you know, a 49 state landslide, but it's Mm -hmm. a factor. Why are you making excuses for the Democrats, Charlie Pierce? (laughs) Why am I making excuses for the Democrats? I'm not making excuses for the Democrats. I think people. I think people are misdiagnosing the the problem with the Democrats. The problem with the Democrats is George McGovern scared the hell out of them for 40 years, and they went along with some really bad policies. Yeah, well, of course, what I'm referencing here is you fast forward another 40 years, and you get to uh, voter suppression and all the rest of it. All these systemic hurdles that the Democrats have to jump over in order to win elections in the modern era, and 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 all of them are accounted for by the fact that Democratic Party let let it's it's its mechanisms and its campaigns in the states go go fallow. That's right. We wound up with, with, with lockstep Republican legislatures. Right, right. Well, yeah, that is, uh, to me, that's the unspoken crisis, I think, in Democratic politics is at the state level, where we, I think we often focus most of our attention at the presidential level, maybe a little bit in the midterms and so on. But you know what? We got another election coming up this coming up November where we've got a lot of state races, a lot of uh, right. uh, s- smaller campaigns going on that are, as far as I'm concerned, just as crucial as some of the national campaigns. And uh, sure, there's a couple of there's a couple of governor's races, right? Yeah. Oh, God, absolutely. Right. It's it's odd to me. Knowing the stakes that we've been told about from Never Trumper, they say, "Okay, look, we want to get rid of this guy, but doing so while at the same time (laughs) 
framing the Democrats as just being weak and feckless and ineffective and electorally challenged. Like we can't find 270 electoral votes with a flashlight and GPS. That is not going to win over any support for this valuable advice that they're presenting to no, us. No, and and, and 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 not only that, but I mean the other thing is, you know, don't 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 ally yourself with these crazy ideas. Don't mm-hmm. you know? Don't run too fast or or or, or talk too loud. Uh, don't startle the guys eating the scrapple in the diner. But the fact the fact is that the next president cannot do what. Barack Obama did, which is basically let these people off the hook. That's right. We can't look forward, not backward this time. I thought Elizabeth Warren was great at Netroots when she said, you know, when Elizabeth, when, when President, when President Elizabeth Warren's not going to look the other way, she's going, she said she's going to take people to court. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, over the, over the border stuff. And, and I think that's, I think that's a commitment that that's a commitment that's worth making. Not only that, but no, the Democrats aren't going to go along with, you know, supply side economics. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go, you know, they're not going to fall for the old Republican you know, okie doke about how deficits don't count when there's a Republican president, but count, but you know, count immediately after a Democratic president's hand comes off the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we've seen that scam run three times. It's not going to happen again. As long as they all understand that, then maybe there's some some room for coalition building. But they're not going to turn the Democratic Party into Romney Republicans. Yeah, I don't if they want to turn a party into Romney Republicans, let them do it to the Republicans. You know, just going back to your debates with Tom Nichols and, and speaking of Twitter, you've only recently become active there. I mean, what's your take on that platform? Uh, it, it seems like you're really taking to it. At least that's the outside. Well, I mean, I like, I, mean I, 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 I like it because it's fun. I don't yeah. take it. You know, I, I don't take it seriously. Mm. Uh, and I, I recognize the, you know, the, the potent, you know, as we do with every, every new, it's not a new thing, but everything, you know, I recognize its potential for evil and I try to stay away from its, you know, from its, from its, you know, it's, you know, incantations to the devil, Mm. but otherwise it's fun. And I met a lot of interesting people. Yeah. Well, you see, you know, I mean. You seem uniquely suited for it. I mean, it seems like that's really uh, as far as. I spent an awful lot of time in saloons, Bob, (laughs) you know, in my youth and. You know, that's pretty you know, much what that's pretty much what it is. You know, if yeah. you find a good saloon with people in it who who like to argue and like to talk, you know, that's one of the right one of the great things about Ireland is that mm. in very many of the saloons, especially in the back country, there's no TV. Yeah, there's no jukebox. Yeah, the only thing people can do is like, you know, fight and get into you know, argue and get into disputations and talk to each other and occasionally sing. Yeah. Uh, it, so I mean, yeah, I mean, I I, I look at it that way. I look at it as, as I look at it as a very valuable news aggregator because I follow so many local newspapers and I, I see a lot of stories that I would otherwise miss. I'm not breaking any news by saying that uh, you've been doing this for quite some time now. And one of the things I've observed about the addition of social media to the political debate in this country is that I think it's emphasized the idea that a lot of people, or maybe it's actually manufactured the idea. I don't know which it is. Maybe you can help me out with this. Everyone wants to save face. And you really see that on Twitter, where you could literally spend days and days and days on an endless thread on Twitter, where (laughs) once you get to the end of it, there's nothing really resolved. And I find that that inability to, to, to admit when you're 
off base about something or and, and I'm talking about you in general. Um, no, 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 I understand. Yeah, yeah. But I, the, the idea that everyone needs to save face desperately for fear of being embarrassed or pantsed or whatever you want to call owned. it. Yeah. Owned. Owned. Owned, exactly. <laughs> exactly ben Shapiro right. destroys Lib on Twitter. <laughs> You know, I, I just wonder if that's damaging the debate, if that's I mean, I know there's lots of things we have to worry about. But I think in terms of that, uh, the impact of social media on all of the things that we've been uh, documenting over the past, especially the past three years. I, I, I think, you know, the social media contributes to the coarsening of the debate on social media I, yeah. I, in terms of its effect on the, you know, the, the general. I mean. I'm not exactly sure what the political debate is in the country right now. Yeah. I mean, we're still dealing with like half the country doesn't even bother to vote. <laughs> and I don't know what the horrendous percentage is that, of people who can't identify their congressman or their state legislator. I mean, the, so the, the, the activity, a lot of the activity on, on, on political social media, I attribute to a lack of activity in actual politics. <laughs> it's yeah. easier to tweet than it is to knock on doors. I think, I think, I think there's a, there's a serious amount, and I think that, you know, certainly voter suppression and, uh, and, and, and its, you know, ancillary effects have contributed to a sense of apathy, to a sense that elections don't count anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, people, people aren't driven to social media, but they do find, you know, they, they have found an artificial space uh, to participate in politics without actually participating in politics. That's right. In fact, I remember uh, Bill Maher once said about online polls signing, or not online polls, but uh, online uh, uh, petitions. Yeah, that it's the least you can do without doing nothing. <laughs> and I feel right. like sometimes social media substitutes for actual political action sometimes, and it's not as effective, I don't think, as doing something that uh, requires some uh, shoe leather and some knocking on doors. You know what I mean? No, I, I I agree. I think it's you know I think there's a there's also a piece in it. At least among political younger political consultants, you know that that they're all taken by the continuing, you know, messianic view of the internet, Mm -hmm. right? Which should have been dispelled by now, God knows, but isn't. (laughs) And you know, somehow, you know, you know, and I think that the Clinton campaign was particularly guilty of this. Mm. You know, the magic of of the magic of the internet and the magic of analytics will, you know, will you know guarantee our victory as opposed to like you know, going to Wisconsin one more time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. And I think, I think, I think over-reliance on uh, data and over-reliance on, on analytics was a real flaw in the Clinton campaign. I think it was a bigger flaw than the candidate. Yeah, that's right. And it's actually surprising because I thought the Obama team did a pretty good job in terms of using analytics and using data and uh, micro-targeting precincts and so on based yeah, on well, that they, information. But they, but, but they also had a once in a lifetime charismatic candidate. That is true. And, yep. a, and a once-in-a-lifetime set of circumstances, mm-hmm. which was the abject failure of a Republican uh, administration, <laughs> plus the biggest economic collapse since you know the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah. But so, and they and they did manage to achieve a mix of those factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, Secretary Clinton. Let's be honest. I mean, she's not Barack Obama. We learned that in two thousand eight. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. In, in terms of a campaigner. Uh, and you know, that it's always hard. I mean, I, what was it? George HW Bush is what the only vice president to accede after a two term president in like a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it, it, that's a, that's a tough hill to climb anyway, 
plus the 25 years of slander that, you know, had been heaped on her head. And I think it sort of drove the people running her, her campaign, you know, into the data and into the analytics so far. They didn't see what was really happening around them. Yes, I think that's a uh, in fact that I would say that's among the uh, top five things that uh, ended up uh, manifesting the uh, results of that particular election. It just th- right. th- there were lots of systemic things that I, I believe that uh, that Russia had a, a lot more to do with the outcome than I think a lot of people are willing to admit. And I'm not talking about. Oh, necessarily- I think I think I, I, I think there's not. So, I think the 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 overwhelming impression I still have of the 2016 Clinton campaign is they were always getting caught with all their data and with all their analytics, they were always getting caught flat footed by something. Mm -hmm. They got caught flat footed by Bernie Sanders. Nobody saw that coming. That's right. And it was, and it was well underway by the time they were able to deal with it. Nobody saw Donald Trump coming Mm -hmm. and he was well underway and the Clintons never really found a way to deal with that. Uh, they were caught flat-footed by James Comey. They were caught flat-footed by the. New- They're always caught flat-footed by the New York Times. Neither Clinton has ever been able to understand why the New York Times hates them. <laughs> That's true. You know, I mean, it just it it doesn't make any sense that it rocks their comfort zone. Uh, and and ultimately, they were caught flat-footed by by the involvement of the Russians. No doubt. And you know what my, concerns me more than anything else right now is that I get the sense that Joe Biden's going down that same road getting caught flat-footed by this or that. I mean, he certainly was a deer in the headlights when Kamala Harris hit him the other day uh, in that in that debate, where I thought, my God, knowing what his, uh, you know, what his oppo research looks like, <laughs> you'd think he'd be better prepared for that, especially well, because... I, I mean, I mean, I, he, I mean the guy, the, you know, the guy's been in the Senate, you know, since Daniel Webster, for God's sake. <laughs> I mean, his, his, his oppo research must be transported by barge <laughs> at this point. See, I, and he should. He's got to know that. I mean, that that's the that's job one in selling Joe Biden to the country is deal with all the stuff he's done before. Absolutely. And you know what? There had already been articles in major publications written about Joe Biden's actions with uh, busing in the mid-70s and the segregationists and all the rest of them. That is that had been well documented to that point. It seemed like, oh, shit. You know, to me, it's yeah, he's got a race problem. But at the same time. From a political point of view, he has got a serious deer in the headlights problem as being the front runner. There's no reason, especially after, especially what you were saying about 2016, especially with 2016 as precedent. There's no reason why the presumptive nominee of his party should be uh, this uh, this ineffective in responding to something that he should have been prepared for. You know, he just needs a better no, answer. No question, and, and 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 let's be you know let's be honest. He hadn't really gotten hit on Anita Hill yet. Oh, that's right. That's coming down the pike. Yeah. And he hasn't yet gotten hit on the bankruptcy bill, which Elizabeth Warren, I guarantee you, has, you know, a folder as big as the Ritz on that bankruptcy bill because they fought about it before. Yeah, yeah. He's got to know that's coming. And you know what? If it doesn't come, I, we need to do our best, Charlie, to make sure that it actually does. Because that, of all the Biden things, that's one of the things that really sticks with me. Where I just I can't find any any way to explain that away, especially knowing that it came down a matter of a few years before the Great Recession, which. Quite honestly, right. especially, you know, you listen to someone like Tom Hartman, you listen to even Bernie Sanders for that matter. They were all predicting that recession 
years in advance. I mean, it wasn't like this was out of the blue and we all were shocked and surprised that the financial sector collapsed. I mean, but, no, I mean, there's video of Elizabeth Warren talking about it in 2004. Yeah, absolutely. That, absolutely. I mean, right. and, 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 you know, and, and she tells a story about how she 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 put it in front of her class mm-hmm. one day in the, the early 2000s. What happens if these things happen? If, you know, the, you know, pulling out the, you know, the Jenga pieces from the big short and all the class says, you got to sell, you got to fire people, you got to close division, you got to lay off. And then one tentative student in the back of the class puts up her hand, puts up his or her hand and says, no, I go out and I buy everything so that my collapse will take down everything else. And as she says, her class in one 45 minute session invented too big to fail. (laughs) Yeah. People Absolutely. knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. You know, Brooksley Bourne knew it was coming. Elizabeth knew it was coming. Uh, as you said, Bernie and, and, and everybody else knew it was coming. They saw it happening. Yep. Certainly, they, I mean, I, I got to believe the people in the bank saw it was coming and just didn't care. Mm-hmm. They, thought they, could, they, they thought they could get out before the, the, you know, the critical Jenga piece got pulled out. <laughs> and it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Are you uh, are you leaning toward uh, Senator Professor Warren like I am, or wh- where are you? Right oh, yeah, now I mean, I, I am, I am, I am very conflicted because I knew her and her husband long before she ran for Senate, let alone president. Yeah, I'll tell you the story. I was at the Boston Globe magazine, and they tasked me to write a, a cover story in 2008 when the everything was hitting the fan. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you, okay, I'll do it, but you got to understand, I know nothing about economics. So they said, well, go on over to the news side and ask around and see if they know anybody you should talk to. And somebody gave me Simon Johnson, and I talked to him at MIT, and I tried to talk to Rubini, but he wasn't in the country at that point, I think. And finally, I ran into Mike Resendez, uh, my old Boston Phoenix running buddy, the guy Mark Ruffalo played in the movie Spotlight, by the way. Oh, yeah, great. And he had just, he had just done a long series on bank, on, on, uh, on collection agencies mm-hmm. and their nasty tactics. Yep. And I said, who do you know that can explain this, whatever this is happening? You know, because I don't know about you, but for me, I woke up one morning and the world economy was collapsing. I didn't know it was coming. It just happened one day. Yeah. All of a sudden, one day, people in Washington were saying, well, you know, if we don't get this money by 8 o'clock, uh, everything, every business in America is going to go out of business. Yeah. And yeah. we're all going to have red lines. It's going to last 50 years. So I went to Mike and I said, look, I don't understand this stuff. Uh, who, you got anybody from your list of sources that I could, and he said, yeah. He said, there's this woman over at Harvard Law. Go over there, sit with her for an hour, you'll understand it. So I went over and I, 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 met, uh, I met the senator professor, and uh, she turned out to be a big fan of an NPR show I do called Only a Game, a sports show. Yeah. So we talked about that for a while. And then I said, look, I don't know what this is. I mean, I don't know what's happening the world is coming down my, around my ears, and I, and I never heard the tremblers. And within 40 minutes, I understood the whole thing. Wow. She just sat there and said, she explained collateral debt, collateralized debt obligations and, and uh, credit default swaps and how that you know, connected to home mortgages, how that connected to the credit freeze. And I walked out of there, and I, I already knew anything I needed to know for the piece. Yeah. And so I, I, I go, like I said, I go back with her for a while. I'm, I, I, I have a, an unavoidable conflict. Uh, I wrote a lot that she shouldn't run for president, and she's proving me wrong. Yeah. Win or lose, she's running a hell of a campaign. What are the things you think she needs to overcome in order to win? Uh, I mean, just uh, maybe the nomination and then the general. 
well, I think having a uterus is right up there. That would be true. Uh, yeah. I don't think we. I don't think we want to minimize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're going to come at her with the with the Native American thing, but I think that's played out. Yeah, it is. I mean, it hasn't worked for anybody yet. It certainly didn't work for Scott Brown. Uh, I think they're probably going to come at her with the Harvard elitist, but that dispenses, you know, as soon as anybody spends 15 minutes with her in a room, they know she's not a Harvard elitist. Uh, I think that, you know, they, they, you know, they might come at her as being too far left. And I think they'll get some help from certain democratic quarters in the primary on that one. They'll certainly come after her on foreign policy because that's, I mean, let's face it, that's not a wheelhouse. That hasn't been what she's been doing. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think those and and of course there'll be the usual, you know, slanderous nonsense. They'll find somebody, you know, that she gave a D to in her class who says she's a terrible professor and stuff. Yeah, you know, and who knows what the Russians will come up with? Oh right, right. Well, that's. I mean, once you once once you've dispensed with you know empirical reality, it's a breeze. Yeah, I mean, talk about something that <laughs> that no one saw coming. I mean, no one saw yeah. the Russian interference coming, and so that's one of the biggest things. I think that's creating. Almost, Charlie, like a a national nervous breakdown. I think it's obviously well. That's that was the whole point of it. Yeah. I mean, I spent a long time wondering if the Trump victory wasn't some sort of beta test that got out of the lab. <laughs> that they yeah. were going to try yeah. this stuff. They were going to try this stuff out and then really hit us with it in 2024. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it was working. Yeah. Beyond their wildest dreams. So they just said, "Screw it, let's go." And all they were doing, all they really wanted to do, was so chaos. And so this. You know, this kind of distrust that you're mentioning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I certainly didn't think, I don't think even they thought he was going to win. Oh, God, no. In fact, what the intent was, I mean, I think what we know right now, at least based on some of the intelligence, is that Vladimir Putin was just simply trying to weaken Hillary so that when she became president, that she would right. be more vulnerable than she would have been otherwise. And I think that was the intent. And then suddenly, wow, it worked beyond, I think, his wildest dreams, Putin's wildest dreams. I mean, are our elections uh, becoming permanently the domain of foreign interference? I mean, should we? This is something we should expect from now on that we should plan for. Oh, it's definitely something we should plan for. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't think there's any question about that. And I, you know, I have faith in our nerds. I think you know, you know, given sufficient you know inducement, I think our nerds can beat their nerds. Yeah, I mean, our nerds came up with this nonsense in the first place. Uh, I, I think it will be helpful if the national government were to pay a little bit more attention to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a very big promoter of Jay Johnson's uh, proposal to make voting systems part of the national infrastructure. Yeah, I agree with that, you know, too. Which got hand-waved, which got hand-waved away. Uh, I certainly think that the biggest mistake Barack Obama made was, was going along with or, or being scared out of uh, doing, announcing this during the election by Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I think that was the last gasp of Barack Obama's admirable but ultimately failed attempt to reach across the aisle. Yeah, sometimes you just have to throw caution to the wind, and Barack Obama was, well, he had a lot of caution. <laughs> there was a lot well, of caution I mean, all throughout the years. You're the eight, president of the United States, and you know yeah. that Russians are screwing with the election. Mm-hmm. You tell the country. That's what you do. Yeah. I mean, it's like Kennedy and the missiles in Cuba. Right. Once you're sure, tell the country. Show the country the evidence. I mean, now that we know, I mean, now that everything is out, 
why do you think Nancy Pelosi is so hesitant to uh, to hold this guy accountable? Why why is there such a, a feet dragging when it comes to impeachment? I honestly think she thinks it's a political loser. Yeah, uh, and she's not going to get moved off that. Hmm. I liked what happened yesterday. I like putting people on the record. I love putting people on the record. Yeah, uh, you know, in in, in that sense. Uh, I, you know, and I think that was a big step. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with Mueller. Mm-hmm. Uh, my instinct tells me that he's going to do his, it's all in my report and I have nothing further to say and therefore let everybody down. But if they keep poking him the way they have, you know, try, keep trying to devalue his entire public career. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, this is one of those guys who, you know, you don't want to get in a fight with cause you're never really sure if he's going to know when the fight was over. <laughs> Right. I mean, the guy didn't. The guy didn't win. A, you know, a couple of silver stars in Vietnam by you know shirking from a fight. Uh, so I mean, I don't know. Maybe if the the, the lunatics on the on the committees, you know, poke him enough, mm-hmm. we might see some, we might see something interesting happen. Yeah, yeah. They're certainly scared of it. I mean, I mean, they're, they're certainly you know in the White House and outside, they're certainly nervous about his testifying. I want to turn now to uh, to writing, and you know, I don't say this lightly. You, sir, are the writer I want to be when I grow up. I, anyone, oh, you're too kind. Anyone who asks, that's that's how I feel. What's your approach to covering Trump and all of this madness as a as a journalist, as a writer, as an observer of the political scene? How do you digest this crap, Charlie? Well, I and I, I don't think I digest it very well. I, my stomach's <laughs> hurt ever since November of 2016. Me too. Uh, I, I try. You know, as I've gone along, I've tried to do two. I've tried to do two things on the blog. One, as best I can, to avoid the shiny objects. Uh, yeah. Some of the shiny objects are very serious, and you can't. I mean, you can't really ignore them, as we discovered over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've also tried to keep track of the very real damage that's being done below the surface of the government. The lack of staffing of positions. This insane. Uh, effort now to move the government out of Washington and move, you know, the Department of Agriculture to Kansas City and the, you know, the Department of the Interior, or the Bureau of Land Management to Colorado Springs, uh, the incredible list of unqualified and only semi-qualified, you know, larval Scalia's into the federal bench. Yeah. This is all the stuff that's going to outlive Donald Trump mm-hmm. or outlive his administration. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's sort of been my, my, my lodestar. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, what I said before, when I follow on Twitter, I follow all those local newspapers because that's where you get the information about, you know, what's going on in state legislatures, which is, you know, you have to follow the Republicans in the state legislatures. Not for that matter, you have to follow Democrats in the two, because that's the farm team. Yep. You know, the, the people in the Congress now didn't come from nowhere. They didn't come from the air. They came from state, le- by and large, they came from state legislatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where you, if you know. The future Louis Gohmerts are down there somewhere. It's terrifying. And if you keep an eye on them, you can recognize them before they, you know, turn up on C-SPAN. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of what I try to do. Uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I spent eight years writing, you know, a, a sports column for a tabloid owned by Rupert Murdoch, the Boston Herald. So I learned after, you know, a long apprenticeship at the late great Boston Phoenix where I wrote long – uh, I learned to be pithy right in the sports column. So, you know, I got a couple of, I've, I've got a couple of pitches still left in the repertoire on that, 
but basically, I'm you know, I'm basically what I'm trying to do is I'm 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 trying to tell the truth in my eyeball. Yeah. You know, based on 40 years in the biz mm-hmm. of you know this of of of, and I'm trying very hard to distinguish what's unprecedented from what has happened, and we just called it by a different name. Yeah. You know what I mean? To, to, to actually put all of this in context, not only in terms of what we've experienced, but where it's going into the future, I think is absolutely vital. And and it's it's that context, I think, that not only provides a sense of panic in some cases, but also provides a sense of relief. And I think that's also uh, important for us to experience. Uh, see also previous nervous breakdown remarks. Um, do you ever experience a sense of, uh, of dread as though the pendulum's not going to swing back? I was just saying the other day, I was talking to somebody at Netroots Nation about this. I can't remember who it was. Yeah. But on the, the one area on which I feel a sense of, of looming dread is the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Yep. I am coming to the belief that a democratic system of government cannot cope with what's coming. Yeah. There are too many choke points and the crisis is too big. And that scares the hell out of me. Because unless... A democratic system of government prepares for what's coming. An authoritarian government will 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 be the ones who 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 make the the tough calls on who lives and who dies and who lives where. Well, especially that scares, you know, the, hell out, that scares the hell out of me. Yeah. And, and you know what? Feeding that, I think, Charlie, this concept that democracy can't handle it. I get the sense that, and this is just through my own experience, I don't know if this is anecdotal to me or, or everyone's experiencing this at the same time, this phenomenon that every time I write about the climate crisis, every time I tweet about it, every time I, everything from a blog post to a, a thousand words on Salon, my response, crickets chirping. I think people are so terrified and overwhelmed by the degree of that crisis that it's almost like no one wants to look into that uh, burning reactor core. <laughs> you know what I mean? No I think, one, people I are think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, the only people, as near as I can tell, in the federal government who are taking preparations for the climate crisis seriously is the military. Yeah, NASA. The, the <laughs> Pentagon's got no place for climate deniers. Mm-hmm. They're fortifying naval bases. They're They're... You know, they're, they're talking to the Dutch about how they do it. Now, and all of this may not matter. That's a scary thing. Mm-hmm. But they're at least confronting the size of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's terrifying. And, I, and, and, and to me, it's absolutely the one master crisis behind all the others. Yeah. It doesn't matter what kind of a gold-plated health care system we, we devise it's going to be overwhelmed by epidemic disease. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what kind of humane, if humane and, and, and structured immigration system we developed, it's going to be overwhelmed by, migra- by mass migration. Yeah. People are going to go where the water is. The next world war is going to be fought over water. It's not going to be fought over oil. Yep, that's 100% true. 100% true. In fact, people are preparing for that now. The, the guy behind, uh, what was that movie a few years ago with about the financial collapse? And that sa- the guy who saw that, played by Christian Bale in the movie, and I, for- I the name of the movie oh, is... Oh, right, I'm- right, right, right. The drummer. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 yeah. the drummer with ADHD. Yeah. Michael yeah. Uh, Burry. Michael Burry. There you go. That's it. That's is it. His name. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah he- that's what he's doing now, right? I mean, he's, he's dedicating himself to 
shorting water. Yeah, exactly. That, and he's preparing for that. And and good, good lord, he's going to make a fortune probably. But you know, look, my, no, nobody's going to be alive. Nobody's going to be alive to cut him the check. I mean, here's what I'm thinking about in my darkest hours. One, how do we as communicators turn that ship? How do we? communicate to people in a way that gets them triggered into action. Likewise, you know, I also find myself contemplating the possibility that the remainder of my career is going to be documenting the collapse of it all. I mean, I think it's a live possibility. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that five years ago. <laughs> uh, I think it's a live, I think it's a live possibility that under the pressure of the climate crisis and our res- lack of response to it, that all the systems will collapse. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, we're losing, we're lo- we're losing Louisiana by the yard. Yeah, you know, we're losing, we're losing Alaska. The 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 nation of Tuvalu isn't going to exist in five years. It's going to be underwater. We're losing entire countries. And I keep projecting what we do now as a country onto what we do will do in the future. Say ten years in the future, what we do in this country more often than not, if you look at the healthcare system, for example, what we do is we target the symptoms. We we rarely target the cause. Every pharmaceutical ad you see on MSNBC during the day is an ad for how we focus on the symptoms, not the cause. And my concern is that what we're going to do, the way we're going to tackle the climate crisis instead of you know coming up with solutions to the root cause instead we're going to be finding ways to build better seawalls and sand berms you know what i mean and that that's terrifying to me (laughs) i i i i tell people i I tell people this story all the time i for the last book i wrote i went to a place called shishmaref in alaska which is a barrier island Mm -hmm. in on the chukchi sea in the arctic and it's slowly being eaten away by the ocean because the ocean doesn't freeze as long the permafrost is gone and that's where typhoons go to die. So typhoons, typhoons used to go up there and beat themselves to death on the, on the Arctic sea ice. And you know, that would be it. But now they go up there and they pull great chunks of this island back out with them because they, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're fighting over an ocean that hasn't frozen. And on the beach at Shishmaref, on the, the shores of the Chukchi Sea, there are three previously failed seawalls that you can identify mm-hmm. in a line. Yeah. You know, gradually moving their way back towards the town. And it's like it's like watch it's like seeing an archaeological dig where there are like seven like Troy where there are like seven cities in one place. Yeah. That's what it looks like. And that's yeah. what and you're right. I mean, every one of those seawalls was supposed to do the job and it didn't. Yeah. You know why? Because the ocean doesn't care who wins the debate. Oh yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, no matter what we come up with, no matter what system there is, life finds a way. <laughs> Nature yeah. will find a way to bash right on through that as long as we're not conquering the, the root cause of all of this. But I mean turning back to uh to Trumpism for a second, is this do you think is this going to be a part of our politics for the foreseeable future? Or there's a is there a good chance that we uh, successfully bottle this back up. I mean, what are the odds well, of I one mean, or the I, other? That's going. That's good. That that's going to be completely up to our friends, the Never Trumpers. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they're going to have to. They're going to have to wring it out of their own party. Uh, that's right. Uh, and you know, I, I mean, I, I've said all along that what really terrifies me about this is the next guy's not going to be bad at it. <laughs> the only thing that's partially saved us so far is the guy's an incompetent, as well as well as an authoritarian. Yeah. yeah. The next guy may not be incompetent. Right. Right. And we got to be ready for him. And we got and the and the Republicans have to be ready for him because nine times out of ten he's going to come from that side of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And do you think the Never Trumpers control a considerable number of voters? I mean, how many p- 
what's the percentage of the voting population that the never Trumpers actually influence? I don't think they influence any any voters. I think they you know they, they influence influencers. I see. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, I think you're talking about independence and I don't know how in the hell anybody can be an independent at this point, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Uh, I don't think there are that many. I think most I think most people who 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 tell pollsters their independence are probably lying. Yeah. Uh, because they think it makes them look smarter mm-hmm. uh, and more involved. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, 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 on, I honestly don't know. I mean, I think, as I said before, I think if, if his approval rating among Republicans is 72 percent. He's going to go down to a crashing defeat. Yeah. Well, good Lord, I hope so. You know, going going back to your your writing here, um, one of the most beautifully written political essays I've ever read uh, by anyone living or dead was your thing in Esquire last October about Christine Blasey Ford and the Kavanaugh debacle. Um, if those of you listening today want to uh, check it out, it's titled This Vicious Buffoon is a Vessel for All the Worst Elements of the American Condition. You, sir, have a gift for balancing your writing between serious analysis, jokes, and wordplay. Uh, I think one of the, the best things that you do as a writer is drawing the balance between those three plates to spin. Um, and of course, you know, stirring rhetoric that, I mean, in particular, that piece was just like, poetry i mean how do you even begin well, you, had to, you had to have been i think i think you had to have been in the room to really you know, <laughs> well tell us set to, the scene how i mean how do you begin to construct a piece like that one well you you something i learned as i said writing a sports column at the boston herald you do mm-hmm. you do it as you do it as, as you give it the best effort you can on the time you have to do it yeah uh, which on the internet is, of course, you know, an hour and a half ago. But, <laughs> sure, yeah. And then, yeah. It, and 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 then, you know, if you, you you give it the best you can for in that period of time, and then you go do it, you know, you suck it up and, and go get them tomorrow, as the old baseball manager used to say. That always re- that was really like kicked off a lot of synapses, though, mm-hmm. because it was such an incredible spectacle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's. I mean, the guy's asking Amy Klobuchar if she if she gets blackout drunk. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things that I didn't expect to be covering in my life, but that was certainly one of them. I mean, it is just, again, it amazes me how you uh, just have this, na- it seems natural, it seems effortless to me that you're able to balance the seriousness with the jokes uh, in a very, very effective way. And it's not easy to do. It really isn't, especially when you've got an audience that I think, quite honestly, I think there are a lot of people who are really suffering emotionally with what's going on right now. And it, it came to one of many heads during the, the Blasey Ford situation and the Kavanaugh hearings. And uh, and you were able to crystallize all of that uh, with that same balancing act between those things where you've got this prose and then you've got jokes and you're able to uh, draw them together in a way that doesn't turn people off. It actually attracts, you know, just the right eyeballs to those pieces. Uh, it, it's a remarkable thing to uh, to look at. I mean, do you ever do you ever catch yourself going too serious or too silly with a piece and then suddenly having to pull back from it? You're like, oh, wait a minute. Now, this is too uh, this is too silly for uh, the subject matter. Or this is too serious for the subject matter. Do you ever find yourself in that in that place? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I make, you know, at this point, I'm sure I make, I make those kind of calls at almost a subliminal level. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, if if if, if a, generally if a piece is going to be lighthearted and 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 I hope funny. I know that from the start. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's only. I mean, I I just did one not long before you called about this guy. Uh, this guy, this representative Kelly, who says he's 
he's he's he's a person of color because he's white and Anglo-Saxon. First of all, if he's Kelly, he's not an Anglo-Saxon. Jesus he's insulting. God. He, he, yeah, he's insulting his, his ancestors by saying so. Yeah. Uh, and second of all, white is not a color, as we all learned in second grade. It's the absence, it's the absence of, color. of color. Yeah. 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 100%. Oh, God damn it. And see, that's just the thing. Who votes for these guys? I, 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 don't, I don't know how they can continue to get away with just <laughs> rank nincompoopery like this. I mean, if it's not anything the president says, it's one of these guys blurting just something inexcusably dumb. Where you just can't, no matter what you know, we hear Chuck Todd say on cable news, you just can't draw an equivalent with any other political faction in this country. The shit that we see from the Republican Party, especially now, is just inexcusable, and yet they keep getting away with it, don't they? Oh, yeah. There's no, I mean, I mean there's, 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 there's absolutely no question, because there's an audience for it, and the audience has been carefully built up yeah. over the past 40 years. Well, before we let you go, Charlie, what do you do for fun? What do you do to unwind? What would you recommend to the rest of us who are, you know, we've got our face faces pressed up against our computer screens watching this horror show on a daily basis? How do you how do you decompress? I walk. I, you know, I read a lot for fun. I, I have to get back. I used to fence. I got to get back. I hurt my knee. So I got to get back to that. Uh, you know, I, live your life. You know, I mean, I mean, it's hard to turn it off. I understand that. Yeah. And I have I have a real trouble doing it myself, but you know, try to get out in the world. I mean, I one of the things I I I do every day is I take the bus to the place where I write, and I like being on the bus. Wow. You know, I like being on the bus with other people going to work, other people going to work. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean that, that that's that's my that's my only advice, and I'm certainly not anybody's life coach. Do I mean do you go uh do you go to like a public place to write or is there like a, a Yeah, I go I, I, well, now that it's hot, I go to the Watertown Library in Massachusetts. Oh, how about that? Oh, that's great. Big old reading big old oak reading room. Makes me feel like a you know, a scholar of some sort. <laughs> you bring a, a cigar and some brandy. Seems to be as if uh Oh no, 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 no food and only <laughs> bottled drinks. You don't wear an ascot or something to play a place like that. No, 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 no. <laughs> I uh well, you know, my friend, it was a uh, a pleasure finally getting to talk to you, and I swear yeah, to God, yeah, it's great to be on the old network. I'm going to put it together. I'm going to get Tom Nichols, and we're going to just we're going to do a one off <laughs> where I'm just going to get right. you guys to beat each other to death with shovels. Oh, <laughs> you're a mis- you're a miserable human being. What can I tell you? It'll be like that Star Trek episode. What is it? A mock time where uh, Kirk I'm Costa? Time. Yes, uh, I'm deep in, I'm deep in the plaque towel of the blood <laughs> fever. All right. Except that's except that's all about like mating and stuff, and I don't want to even think about that in relation to Tom. Yeah, and you're a Civil War guy, aren't you too? A bit of one, yeah. Right. Not 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 a great one, but you know, I know my friend Bob Bateman in in uh, in Washington, who also writes for the blog from time to time. He's my he's my he's my military historian. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I'm gonna I'll have to take you around Gettysburg one of these days. I am just oh, uh, I love it. I yeah. love it. Bob does Bob Bob does it like a two day tour of it, which. I am told is really wonderful. Yeah, you know, if you ever get down there and you get a chance to uh, go around with a licensed battlefield guide, ask them to do Longstreet's Counter March. That's just my little bit of a, There's no more fascinating a tour of the Gettysburg battlefield than finding out how Longstreet got his entire division over to uh, Devil's Den and Little Round Top. An incredible yeah. story to, uh, to actually experience firsthand on the same roads. It's an incredible thing. My friend... Well, I mean, a lot... Long, 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 you know, Longstreet was one of the true reconstructionists. 
That's yeah, absolutely became true. a Republican, became ambassador for Turkey, and all of his all of his former colleagues hated him. Yeah. Plus, he was right about Gettysburg. He was absolutely one hundred percent right about Gettysburg. But don't say don't say that in the South. <laughs> okay. All right, my friend. It was great talking to you, and Thanks, uh, we'll see you on Twitter. Take care. I hope so. Bye bye. Bye bye. Hey, this is Randy Rhodes, host of the Randy Rhodes After Hours podcast. If you love this episode, you're going to love the whole show. Every week we talk about everything that matters to you, from our future as a democracy to our existence on this here planet. Find it all at sexyliberal.com on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts.